Welcome back to Hanging with History, and this is Season 1, That Miracle That Happened, That One Time, Episode 7, and I haven't decided what to call it yet. It's either Rich Vikings, They Showed Me the Money, or Tyr is Baron. In the early 900s, it looked like the Norsemen had won. They had new lands, seeming peace and prosperity. They were living their own lifestyles, customs, and laws, even their own kings. But as it is said, man is a creature that tugs at the thread of his parachute, and you just can't do history without running into the stupidity that smart people commit. Well, I mean, it might not be all that important who your kings are, as long as they don't mess with the rest of your society. Good luck with that. History tends to focus on kings because they often had people writing things down. And there's just more drama coming from the doings of kings and queens than, oh, a land reclamation project that increases arable land or small steps towards people being nicer to each other. And there's a giant tendency in the history of this period to focus on kings and borders and their ebbs and flows. And probably, though it can be interesting... It doesn't matter that much as to what's really going on underneath. Last week, we saw the first written version of the principle that the majority should prevail when there was disagreement. Early forms of juries, popular assemblies, people having value on their own account, not just what they were worth to their lord or boss. It's interesting because we're seeing the seeds of what we can recognize from our perspective as justice and fairness. Justice and fairness, we will argue later, is the most powerful social technology that exists, and that when married to real material technology growth, physical and psychic well-being improves and can begin exponential growth. That's just more important than what new towns were ruled by which king, so-and-so, and at the same time, We don't want to deny the human interest of great enterprises. You haven't mentioned exponential growth before. Is the pandemic starting to affect your history? Hi, Charlie's Angel. Charlie's Angel is a sweetheart with expertise in data. Why don't you tell us what exponential growth look like? If you graph a simple exponential growth curve, you get a line that gets steeper and steeper going up faster and faster. Right. The early stages of pandemics look like that. Another real-life example is if you're smart and save for your retirement early in life, you get compound growth working for you, where every time period you get growth that was greater than the time period before. Of course, the real world, whether it's pandemics or retirement accounts, never truly behaves that way. But generally, investors get the math working for them in a way that is spectacular. There's a story that illustrates exponential growth. A wise man was getting a reward from the emperor of China, and he asked merely for a gift of rice. How much rice? asks the emperor. And he says, set up a chessboard, put one grain of rice on the first square, two on the next, then four, then eight, and double each amount until you get to the last square. The emperor laughs and says, so little. But the wise man points out that there isn't enough rice in the world to fill the last square due to exponential progression. Yeah, thank you. That's a good one. 
The concept of exponential growth is vital to history. It explains how a small founding population from Northeast Asia could populate the entire Americas in a few thousand years. My favorite example from today is that the difference in poverty from the United States and Mexico is just 1% in economic growth over 100 years. But the big one that has the most direct effect on the miracle that happened that one time is the growth in the population of the 13 colonies. How they grew from 50,000 people to over 2 million in 150 years and how that rapidly growing market provided the fuel for the increase in manufacturing in England in the mid-18th century. For Norwegians, there's a little example. Lots of Norwegians emigrated to America in the later 19th century, but just a fraction of the population of Norway. And maybe as many as a third of the immigrants returned home to Norway. For various reasons, including that life for immigrants could be tough, could be lonely, Anyway, because they had more surviving children for several generations, there are now about twice as many Americans who identify as Norwegian-American than there are Norwegians in Norway. Oh, that's surprising. Exponential growth is a powerful thing, and we don't tend to look for its applications as often as maybe we should. How do you apply it to the 10th century in England? Today, we'll have more of a story of monkeys and smart people being stupid. The Danes and Danelaw had things pretty good, but their kings were not on a firm foundation. They had two problems. First, the Norse in Dublin were interested in ruling Northumbria, which was tightly bound to Dublin by trade and travel. To Dublin, there was a good road from York to the west coast and just a short boat ride from there to Dublin. Second, the Wessex Saxons, who were interested in the expansion of their royal rule, had a pretty decent fortification system figured out that helped them hold territory once they took it. So if they wanted to be left alone, they should have concentrated on their own defense and not gone looking for trouble. But they looked for trouble. They picked up their swords when they should have stuck to plowing and trading and decided they should raid Mercia in 910, thinking that the Saxon strength was down in Kent. One thing about wars is that they're easy to start, but you don't necessarily get to decide how they are going to end. You people listening who want to start wars should really learn this lesson. Anyway, the Northumbrians should have heeded this lesson. They invaded, but despite a good start, were defeated. They thought they'd done well when the tough old Ethelred died next year, but they were now to face a woman, Ethelflaed, known as the Lady of the Mercians, and in her the Northumbrians found an opponent too great for them. She had superior strategic intelligence, tenacity, and an organizing ability equal to that of her father, Alfred. She's the most remarkable woman of this part of the Viking Age, with only maybe Gunhild as competition. That Gunhild that was Gorm the Old's daughter, sister of Harold Bluetooth, wife and widow of Eric Bloodaxe, and mother of Harold Greycloak. Years go by, with the Vikings trading here and there while Ethel fled and her brother gradually build fortresses further and further north. But the raids the Vikings were launching were meaningless strategically unless they were followed up with something. They were maybe gaining riches in a small way, but this wasn't going anywhere. Meanwhile, Ethelfled and Edward kept taking this place and that in a seemingly modest sort of way. The historians say the Danes were individualistic in their approach, but to me it seems short-sighted. 
They should have gotten serious about sieges or made peace, at least if the royal people wanted to stay royal. Anyway, the Saxon royals came out on top of the Scandinavian royals, but this was not a bad thing for the Danelaw. West Saxon kings treated the local Norse with consideration, with many Scandinavians serving in the royal court and acting as witnesses in royal charters. You've heard me mention charters before. They're something that lets us keep track of uh, who's important in the society at any given time. But when it comes to politics, the wheel keeps turning, and eventually an Irish-Norse dynasty starts ruling in Northumbria, while in the southern Danelaw, the people were by now anti-pagan and inclined to be loyal to Saxon kings. And why not, when they were well-treated? I mean, I'm going to skip over a lot of conquests and battles and reversals of fortune because it doesn't matter to the story I'm telling. Though I do have to stop and point out that Eric Bloodaxe, Harold Fairhair's most violent son, which is saying a lot, became king in Northumbria for a while. He just showed up, and he was famous. His father was a great man, first king over all Norway, had really great hair, an awesome nickname, and so, of course, they made him king. The Saxons were appalled, of course, my God. And Eric only lasted a year or so, got kicked out, came back for a couple of years, got kicked out again. Northumbrian, Norwegian, Dublin, Norse kings traded places every year or two, and who cares anyway? The time of the pagan kings in England was over. The people had moved on, and however much cool factor Odin worshippers had among the impressionable, the people's hearts were not with them. Eric Bloodaxe is a better figure in literature than history. In the Egil Saga, which you should read, and also Njal Saga, you get a right up-close picture of the man and his time revealed in this just-the-facts-ma'am kind of way. The stories are fascinating and draw you in while a deeper meta-story that you slowly begin to see reveals the higher values of the time as a contrast against a lot of the actual terrible behavior right in front of you. In Egil Saga... A poet warrior with the great name of Egil Skallagrimsen is going to be executed by Eric Bloodaxe in the morning. And overnight, he composes a long poem in praise of Eric. He recites it in the morning, and Eric, smart man, decides to keep the poet alive because he thinks that his future reputation is more important than this immediate question of justice. Anyway, both those sagas are accessible, easy reads. My tip to you when reading them is that whenever you hit a patch that goes on and on with, you know, Thorstein, son of Thorgal, son of Thorir, who was son of poet Belvemund, uncle of that Rongvald who married Helga, daughter of Ketel Trout, or something similar, just skip ahead. You won't be able to keep track, and it doesn't matter to the story much. So back to England. When the last pagan rulers left the scene... There was a long period of peace and prosperity in England. The Danes and Danelaw were loyal, and in return, they had their customs, laws, and rights to manage local affairs in their own way. The Viking attacks were to start again in the 980s. We get some really interesting guys interested in England. People like Olav Tryggvason, Thorkel the Tall, and Sven Forkbeard. The Saxon court and nobility would find themselves unable to deal with these guys. The Vikings would finally win at the royal level, in addition to the more important, longer-lasting, still-with-us accomplishments lower down in society. 
were these super leaders, Olaf Tryggvason, Thorkel the Tall, and Sven Forkbeard, or did the Saxon kings just have a bad spell? I'm going to say both. What's so special about them? Olaf Tryggvason was a life lived on a legendary epic scale. And let's be sure to say it is legend. As history, we mainly have one version of the chronicle, naming him commander of the Norse at Malden, where the last old-school manly man of the Saxons went down to defeat in 992. Why do you say the last manly man? That's an odd phrase. The way Elderman Britnoth is portrayed in the poem, The Battle of Malden. In contrast, all the rest of the upper crust Saxons seemed like a horrible elite at the time. Edric Striona, just to name one, is, is kind of the opposite character. They seem to spend their time stealing land from the church and lay lords, profiteering from government, as if they were in Russia or Latin America instead of England. A recommendation, if you want to go further into this period, there's an excellent podcast called The British History Podcast that has about 30 episodes on the reign of uh, Athelred the Unready, which basically tells a story of serious corruption, repeated treachery from those close to the king, and it's a major case of the fish rotting from the head. It's told with effective humor from a very modern perspective, very much worth the time. Anyway, you may have noticed I've tried to keep this story from the Viking perspective. Partly I'm doing this to avoid what seems an almost irresistible urge of English-speaking historians to practically have a rooting interest in favor of the Saxons during the Viking Age. And fair enough. We call the Saxons English, which gets you emotionally confused with the people living there today, and the Vikings feel like foreign invaders, and of course they were from one perspective, but from another they were a necessary ingredient to what became England, and they are English too from one analytical framework. So while I don't say there's anything wrong with great podcasts like the History of England podcast, I'm trying to tell the story differently, giving you a different perspective. Anyway, back to Olaf. He's also mentioned and features as a scumbag in Adam of Bremen's history, but mostly we think that is a pretty biased account because Olaf brought English churchmen to Norway while Adam was trying to establish the power of Bremen in Scandinavia. We're going to ignore these squabbling historians and look at the saga stories of Olaf. As a grandson of Harold Fairhair, he was a child of destiny, but also a target. As a toddler, his father was killed by agents of Harold Greycloak, son of Eric Bloodaxe, because politics. And his mother fled with him to the Baltic, and there he was taken as a slave. Remember I said maybe a third of people were slaves there and then? Episode 5, well, he was sold a couple times, once for a ram, and one time for a fine cloak, before an agent of the Prince of Novgorod thought, there was something intriguing about Olav, and bought his freedom. Later, as a teen, Olav encounters his former master in the marketplace in Novgorod and killed the bastard with an axe. Good for him. But a mob wanted to string him up until the queen paid a blood wear guild for the master. As a, by the way, Novgorod means new city, so of course it is the first and oldest city in Russia, also founded by Vikings. In time, Olav becomes the chief warrior thereabouts, naturally. The prince becomes jealous of him, so Olav figures he should get out of Dodge while he still can. A natural leader of men, he becomes a raider in Skolne and Gotland and along the Baltic. He grew rich, 
married a princess, became an ally of Holy Roman Emperor Otto II through his in-laws, defeated Denmark in war, forcing Harold Bluetooth to become a Christian so he gets credit for Christianizing Denmark as well as Norway. His princess bride died suddenly, so Olaf headed for England where he heard the wife of a Jarl, Gida, sister of the King of Dublin, was looking for a husband. And though there were dozens of gallants around in their finery, she picked out Olaf as the man to marry, even though he was only in grubbies. He was challenged to a duel, a homegong, by a Saxon lord and defeated and thoroughly humiliated the Saxon lord. Holkun of Norway heard rumors of this Norwegian king in Dublin and sent an agent to see if it might be Olaf, son of Trygvi, and if so, lure him back to Norway. So Olaf goes to Norway, and men flock to him. They defeat Halkun, who is forced to hide in the pigsty with a slave named Kark. Olaf offers a huge reward for Halkun's head within the hearing of Halkun and Kark. Poor Halkun gets suspicious of Kark, who he feels will kill him for the reward. But he has to sleep sometime, and sure enough, Kark cuts Halkun's head off and presents it to Olaf. Olaf takes the head, but cuts off Kark's head instead of paying him, because we can't have slaves behaving this way. What kind of world do you think this is? In history, he founded his royal seat in Trondheim in 997, which later became the Archbishopric of Scandinavia, frustrating the designs of Bremen. He is said to have baptized Leif Erikson, discoverer of Vinland, and sent a missionary to the Norse in Greenland. But before that, he was raiding in England, beating on the Saxons like a drum, and in 992, he signs a treaty with Ethelred, which looks pretty interesting. It defines and regularizes trading status for Scandinavian merchants in London and elsewhere, giving them a kind of most favored nation type status of equality with the locals which was probably either restating a previous agreement, which happened a lot back then, or regularizing something that already existed in fact. It also says no hard feelings. Yes, it does. And 22,000, yes, 22,000 pounds of silver have been paid. So this is just the first of absolutely staggering sums the Saxon kings would pay to Viking kings and raiders over the next 20 years. These amounts were, of course, squeezed from their subjects through special taxes. And as is the way of taxes, these taxes stayed in effect for decades after the Vikings were paid off. It reminds me of that telephone tax the U.S. established to pay for the Spanish-American War in 1899 that was still in effect 100 years later. Eventually, the people maybe figured it would be better to just let the damn Vikings be king and cut out the middleman. Very economical. Why pay retail prices? But whether it was 22,000 pounds of silver or only the 10,000 pounds related by the Chronicle, Olaf's royal ambitions were now on solid financial footing. But lots of money just isn't enough for some people. Or maybe kingship is just really expensive because Olaf was back two years later in 994. This time he came back with Sven Forkbeard of Denmark. They plundered at will, with only London fending them off. Saxon lords submitted to them rather than resist them. Olaf was baptized again. This time, he and Forkbeard were paid 16,000 pounds of silver. And Olaf passes out of English history, except that uh, he kept Forkbeard busy for a few years, and his death left Forkbeard secure enough 
to really go for it in England. Vikings pillaged Saxon lands seemingly almost at will for year after year. Saxon efforts to protect themselves were fruitless. Nobody wanted to fight the Vikings, except in theory. They wanted someone else to fight them. You remember this is the same problem Louis the Pious had 150 years before. At some point around the year 1000, Viking raiders went over to Normandy, where the Normans, as usual, welcomed them with open arms. But the next year they were back until Ethelred paid them off with 24,000 pounds of silver. Man, this was getting expensive. That's the year 1001. And in 1002, we get the attempted genocide of St. Bryce's Day. And lots of historians try to minimize it. Nice people, those historians. Probably kind to their mothers. It seems far-fetched and obviously impossible in the Danelaw. And if you root for the Saxons, I don't blame you. Nah, actually, I do. We have found two mass graves from the time of men who suffered multiple wounds that show on their skeletons. Looks a hell of a lot like massacres took place. And if we found two mass graves from a thousand years ago, how many might there really be? Some say it was only men targeted. Some say Sven Forkbeard's sister was a victim. Anyway, Forkbeard was back in 1003, and maybe revenge was on his mind. Salisbury, Wilton, Exeter, Norwich were taken and pillaged. For two years, the only effective resistance was offered by a loyal Dane, Ulf Kelsnilling, who attacked the invaders and defeated them after they sacked Thetford. But the Saxons were dilatory, cowardly, or lazy, or both, and they ignored Ulf Kell's orders to cut up Forkbeard's ships. Forkbeard could easily have ended his career in death right there. But no, he slipped away instead. 1005 was a famine year in England, so Forkbeard had better places to be. But don't worry, he came back in 1006 and humiliated the Saxon court so more. And the next year, Ethelred paid Forkbeard 36,000 pounds of silver. Forkbeard sailed off and took care of business back home for a few years. And when next the Vikings came back, they were led by the Jums Viking Thorkel the Tall. And the Vikings noticed that the Saxons had been preparing pretty assiduously. They built a fleet, wow, and prepared an army, prepared fortifications, and generally tried to get their act together. So we'll leave it there after conversations with Cami, with some very rich Vikings, impoverished taxpayers, and a very corrupt government. I don't know if you noticed, but we have identified yet another way in which England was unique completely unique in Western Europe. So, Cami, we just listened to episode seven, which is still has two titles. Did you have any reaction? Two titles. Tear is barren or rich Vikings. They showed me the money. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed hearing from you and Charlie's Angel especially the parable where you applied the mathematics behind the Chinese emperor and rice to history, kind of sneaking in your finance background there, and then tied that even into our current pandemic, using the example to explore how the numbers grow. I know we've had these discussions with our children regarding their savings for retirement, 
but I hadn't applied it to history quite like that before and how populations grow and spreads of viruses and such like that. So that was a lot of fun and, and sticks out to me the most. Yeah, we'll use some uh, geometry in the next episode, in episode eight also. Should I sharpen my pencil and pull out my old geometry book? Because I'm not good at geometry. Yeah, it'll probably be on page 10. Page 10. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that I might be able to handle with the, the pandemic comments. The part that's tugging my heartstrings is not being able to go see Quokka and missing Charlie's Angels and our little grandson who doesn't live far away. Yeah. But... Uh, understanding those numbers and remembering how they grow and hoping everyone stays safe. Yeah, with that sad note, uh, let me thank you. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in the episode, please feel free to email me at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening.